Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the reading of God's word. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we are continuing our series on the Emotionally Healthy Church, uh, which I think has been really revealing for a lot of us, myself included. And each week we've been using scripture to unpack a different principle of emotional health. And essentially we're asking ourselves, what are the marks of an emotionally healthy person? Like, what does it look like to process and express all these different emotions we're feeling in a way that allows us to become the people God has called us to be? And I really don't think this series could have come at a better time for our church, especially in light of everything going on in our lives right now, in light of everything going on in our nation right now. You know, last week I preached on the importance of embracing grief and loss. And then literally two days later, I watched yet another horrific video of an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back seven times in broad daylight in front of his three young children. And to think that after all that has happened, after all the protests and riots and social media posts that have dominated our feeds over the past few months, the fact that these things are still happening is completely beyond me. And this week, I literally had to practice what I preached. I had to allow myself to grieve. I had to learn how to sit in discomfort and anger and disbelief, simply trusting that Jesus was weeping too. And more and more, I'm convinced that if we as the church are going to be the salt and light of the earth in this moment in time, more than ever, we're going to need to learn how to navigate our own emotions and help others navigate their emotions as well. Now today we're looking at the sixth principle of emotional health found in Peter Scazzaro's book, which is making incarnation our model for loving well. Making incarnation our model for loving well. And in some ways there is a sense in which all the principles we've looked at up to this point have been leading us to this one. Because while all the others have been very self-focused, Right? If you remember, looking beneath the surface, breaking the power of the past, living in brokenness and vulnerability, receiving the gift of limits, this sixth principle is primarily concerned with the way we treat others. And that's ultimately what should happen, right? That as we do the hard work of looking inward, it should begin to move us outward. It should begin to change the way we relate to and care for those around us. Now that phrase, making incarnation our model for loving well, sounds a lot more complicated than it is. You know, for those of you who are new to or unfamiliar with Christianity, that word incarnation is just a fancy theological term that simply means embodied in human form. Like when we talk about athletes, we'll often say so-and-so is greatness personified. He or she is greatness in the flesh. 
Well, this same idea is woven into the heart of the Christian story as well, in that we believe in an eternal God, a God who is so far beyond our wildest imagination, a God who with a word spoke the entire universe into existence, a God we could never comprehend or wrap our minds around, who chose to reveal himself to us in bodily form. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the message translation of this text. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. He entered our world physically and emotionally. He became one of us. He walked in our shoes. He felt pain and sorrow and grief. He made himself vulnerable and dependent. Why? So that you and I could know him intimately. You know, it's one thing to know God is love. It's another thing to see love in the flesh. God knew it wasn't enough to say he loved us. He knew we needed more than head knowledge. We needed his skin. We needed love that was tangible and concrete. And this is what we mean when we say Jesus is God incarnate. The very way that God loves us is by becoming one of us. Well, you may be saying, well, that's great. But where is Jesus now when we need him the most? Because we could definitely use his, use his skin in 2020. I mean, thank you, Jason, for telling me every week that God's got my life under control, that he's going to take care of me and my family, that I'm going to get through this crazy year. But I haven't seen anything tangible or concrete that makes me believe that to be true. Well, what if I told you that God still has physical skin today? That he can still be seen? touched, heard, and tasted. And you're saying, how is that possible? It's possible through his body, the church. Do you realize that you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are glimpses of Jesus in our homes, workplaces, and spheres of influence? We are tangible manifestations of Christ's love in the world. Alan Hirsch, one of my favorite authors, says in his book, The Forgotten Ways, Ever since the mission and ministry of Jesus, God has never stopped calling for a movement of little Jesuses to follow him into the world and unleash the remarkable redemptive genius that lies in the very message we carry. In other words, stop praying for your wife that she'll experience the love of Christ if you're not willing to go love her the way Christ loves her. Stop praying for God to heal your community if you're not willing to go into your community and do life with those who desperately need healing. Now, obviously, none of us can truly do what Jesus did because we're not God. And yet, in John 13, 34, Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you. In other words, use me as the model for how you love those around you. And the way that I loved you was by entering into your world. And this is what Scazzaro means when he says one of the marks of emotional health is making incarnation our model for loving well. You know, we live in a culture that defines love in so many different ways. Merriam-Webster defines love as strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. In other words, love is a feeling. You can fall in and out of love with someone based on how that person makes you feel. For others, love is a contract. It's a mutual agreement between two people to stay committed to one another under certain conditions. And yet the Bible defines love very differently. 
1 John 4.10 says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not a feeling, not a contract, but a God who became flesh and hung on a cross. And Jesus says, that's the kind of love I want you to model. Now the text we're looking at today here in Philippians 2 may be the seminal passage on the incarnation of Christ. And Paul opens this section in verse 5 by saying, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Meaning what I'm about to tell you isn't theoretical. I actually want you to adopt this mindset in the way you treat one another. And we're going to unpack verses 6 to 11 together to really get at the heart of what the incarnation of Christ tells us about love. So if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to look at three things. The posture of love the price of love, and the power to love, okay? First, the posture of love. You know, the first thing we read in verse 6 is that Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other translations, it says, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. In the King James Version, it says he made himself of no reputation. Do you know how countercultural that is in a city like L.A.? Where people literally come here to build a reputation. Where all of life revolves around crafting that reputation, then managing that reputation, then maintaining that reputation. How many of us would willingly give that up? And most of us probably wouldn't. Because frankly, we love ourselves too much. You see, the posture of love modeled for us by Christ is a posture of humility. C.S. Lewis defines humility as self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not needing to connect everything to me. You see, without the posture of humility, everything we do becomes an effort to make ourselves look better. And isn't this so often the way we love? We do something nice for someone because we want recognition for what we've done. And sometimes you only realize that that was your motivation to begin with after you do something for someone and you don't get the recognition or response you thought you were going to get. Like when I cook my wife dinner and I say it's all for her. But when she takes a bite and she says, it's a little too salty. And then I take the plate away and say, you make something then. Who was that dinner really for? Was it for her or was it for me? When you find yourself saying things like, you know how much I did for him? And that's the thanks I get? You have to ask yourself, who are you really serving? How many times have we rebuked someone in love, but really it was just a way to get something off our chest? hey, I'm just saying this because I love you and I don't want you to embarrass yourself, uh, but you're really bad at your job. You see, we're hardwired in our culture to ask, what does this do for me? Before we ask, what does this do for you? We live in the selfie generation. We live in the me, me, me generation. We are obsessed with ourselves. We're obsessed with the sound of our own voice. We live in a generation that grew up speaking to a camera or a phone without having to listen to someone speak back to us. 
Like I can tell you having preached now to a camera for the past few months, it is very different not having to see someone react to the things you're saying in real time. And it can do some crazy things with your head. And yet this is the world we live in. A world where we can pontificate from behind a computer screen. Where we can post our thoughts freely without having to stop and think about what we're saying because it could offend the person sitting in front of us. A world where we can reply and comment how and when we choose. You see, we're basically being trained to be self-absorbed. And then we wonder why our world in 2020 seems so devoid of compassion and empathy and meaningful conversation. We don't know how to enter another person's world and see the world through their eyes. Now you may say, well, how do we enter the world of someone we don't understand? Like for me, how could I possibly enter the world of a woman? And it's true. No matter how hard I try, no matter how many articles and books I read, there is no way I will ever fully understand the challenges of navigating this world as a woman. How do I enter the world of our black brothers and sisters right now? How do I understand what it's like to see people who look like me constantly dehumanized in our society? How do I understand what it's like to have to have that talk with my son or daughter? I can't. But here's what I can do. I can listen. I can lay aside questions, agendas, defenses, and simply listen. You know, as Christians, we're often so busy contradicting, judging, trying to be theologically correct that we look right past the pain and suffering of our brothers and sisters. I saw a quote this week by Reverend Ron Bell who said, I think you were so busy looking for a riot that you missed the gathering of the grieving. I think you were so busy looking for looters that you missed the lament and heartbreak of a community. I think you were so busy looking for trouble that you missed the tragedy of systemic racialized trauma on the bodies of black and brown people. Tonight, tomorrow, and even the next day, I beg of you, look again. Look again. The incarnation of Christ models for us a love that is never me-centered. It's always other-centered. It's never me first. It's always you first. Tim Keller, pastor and author, always says, the world would be so different if even for five minutes, every person adopted the mindset of you first. Your needs before mine. My life to serve yours. Well, Jason, does that mean I'm supposed to be a pushover or a doormat and let people step all over me? Of course not. And I would even argue that sometimes choosing not to speak up can be just as much an act of self-preservation as choosing to speak up. In addition, keep in mind that the beauty of the incarnation in Philippians 2 is not about the oppressed choosing to stay oppressed. No, the incarnation is about the person with the power and privilege choosing to give up that power and privilege for another. Which brings us to the second point, the price of love. You know, one of the things we will begin to realize as we take on the posture of you first is that love always comes with a cost. Notice what it says in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For Christ loving us cost him everything. If you find that it's easy to love your spouse or your coworkers or your family members, you probably aren't loving them. 
because love always has a price. And yet for many of us, the moment loving someone means we have to sacrifice our time, our resources, our energy, our way of life, that's usually where our love ends. You know, I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling these past few months, and it's always fun when we get to the section on love languages. Because our natural instinct as human beings is to love people either the way we want to be loved or in a way that's comfortable or convenient for us. You know, when Carol and I did our premarital counseling almost 10 years ago now, we realized when we ranked our love languages, my number one through five was her number five through one. Like for me, I give love primarily through words of affirmation. And that's on the bottom of her list. And what I've realized over the years is that I can encourage her all I want. I can think that I'm loving her so well, that I'm being such a great husband. But if that's not how she receives love, and I'm just doing it because it's convenient for me, that's not really love. You see, if you choose the way of Jesus, you're choosing a route that's more often than not inconvenient and costly. You know, recently there have been some reports of churches across the country defying state mandates, choosing to resume large gatherings indoors. And obviously the topic of when and how we want to reopen has come up within our staff and leadership as well. And one thing I'm so proud of our team for is that from the beginning, the only question that has guided this discussion for us is what does it mean to love our neighbors? What does it really mean for us to be a church for the city? And the more we talked about it, the more we felt that at least for us, at this point in time, loving our neighbors means staying virtual for the indefinite future. Now are most of our congregants young and low risk? Yep. Is it challenging to do church online every week? Very. Do we miss gathering together in person? Absolutely. Do I ever wonder if staying in this format will affect our engagement and momentum and financial health all the time? And yet, we believe that if staying in this format allows us to be a more faithful presence and witness to our city, all of these things are worth the price. You see, the church capital C is under a microscope right now. People are asking, are we really who we say we are? Will we actually sacrifice our needs and preferences for the most vulnerable among us? Or will we be a church that just loves the idea of loving our neighbors more than actually loving them? You know, a friend of mine sent me a podcast this week called Nice White Parents. And it's a pretty uncomfortable listen, but I would highly recommend it. And it basically argues that contrary to popular belief, it's actually white liberal parents, not racist Klan members, who have helped perpetuate the segregation of public schools in America under the guise of progressive ideals. Now, whether you agree with that premise or not, I can tell you that at least for me, listening to that podcast was like looking into a mirror. Because I often pride myself in the fact that I live in the city, that I care about social issues, that I serve a church located in the heart of downtown LA, and yet even for myself, I can say that I often love the idea of being for the city more than actually being for the city. And you know, I think about that a lot. Right now, if I'm being completely honest, it's very in to be talking about racism and racial justice in the church. 
especially in a progressive city like ours, it doesn't cost us that much to be a woke church. But I ask myself, will we as a community continue to grieve and fight for our black brothers and sisters even when it's no longer, quote, relevant? Will we continue to fight against systemic injustice in our community even when people get tired of hearing about it? Are we willing to love at great cost to us? Or will we only love when it's convenient, when it benefits us, when we want to be perceived a certain way? Because the kind of love modeled by the incarnation of Christ is a love that demands everything. Okay, so number one, the posture of love. Number two, the price of love. And finally, the power to love. Where do we get the power to adopt a posture of you first in all of our relationships? Where do we get the power to love others at great cost to our own lives? I'll tell you where we don't get it, through guilt or shame. You know, right now, we as a society are foolishly trying to guilt people to love. Like whether it's on the topic of race or politics or masks, I don't know anyone who's actually changed their position on an issue because someone shamed them. Love cannot be coerced, and yet that's what we're trying to do. No, we can only love the way Jesus loved when we first experienced this kind of love for ourselves. You can only possess the power to forgive when you understand that you've been forgiven. We can only show grace to those who've wronged us when we realize the grace we've been shown. We can only give up our comfortable way of life to serve others when we understand that God left his heavenly throne to serve us. And here's the beautiful thing about this passage. You know, we often think we lose when we love like this. Joke's on us. Fell for it again. Made myself vulnerable to someone who didn't love me back. Forgave someone who, uh, who hurt me again. And we convince ourselves, you know what, maybe it's better if we just don't love at all. But notice the text doesn't end at verse 8. Verses 9 to 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, to love this way may mean we have to die, both literally or figuratively. But Jesus shows us that death is not the end of the story. Out of death, God brings forth new life. And when we love the way Jesus loved with our whole selves, a reward awaits us that is unimaginable. And I'm not talking about a material reward. I'm talking about that unshakable joy that comes from submitting our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Because when we're filled with His love, we can endure all the pain and rejection and betrayal and heartache that will undoubtedly come when we start to love people the way Jesus loved. Friends, this is the kind of love our world needs now more than ever. A love that confounds both the left and the right, a love that leaves the 99 for the one, a love that many might call inefficient and foolish. And yet this is the love that we see in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. A love that not only saves us, but one that transforms and molds us to be the people he's called us to be. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we're living in a world that is desperate for your skin, for a love that is tangible and concrete. And yet so often, even as Christians, we fail to love others the way you love us. We confess that we so often choose the way of comfort and convenience rather than the way of the cross. And we know that part of the reason why is that we so often forget how loved we are, that we are undeserving beneficiaries of your mercy and grace. So today we remember the gospel, the good news that you entered our world and gave up your life to set us free from our sin and reconcile us to yourself and to those around us. We thank you for your love that knows no bounds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.